Welcome to Workforce Rx with Futuro Health, where future-focused leaders in education, healthcare, and workforce development explore new education-to-work approaches and innovations. I'm your host, Von Tone Quinlevin, CEO of Futuro Health. I'm excited to have my guest, Jamie Marisotis, today because he's going to help us think through something everyone in workforce development is trying to understand. What will be the impact of AI, automation, and digitization on the future of work? And how can we help workers successfully ready themselves rather than fear this future? Jamie is the longtime president and CEO of Lumina Foundation, an independent private foundation that is committed to making opportunities for learning beyond high school available to all. But perhaps more important to our discussion today, he's the author of the new book, Human Work in the Age of Smart Machines, which looks at the possibilities and opportunities he sees in this emerging trend. Jamie, so good to reconnect with you today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Vaughn. Great to be with you. When I was executive vice chancellor in the California system of 115 community colleges, I often referenced your foundation's big goal, the call for 60% of Americans to attain a high-quality post-secondary degree or credential. What's your report card on the nation's reaction um, to this call to action? And is this goal still important to you and the Lumina Foundation? Uh, it certainly is important to us. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I'd, I'd give us a um, a pretty good grade. I'm a hard grader. I'd give us a B or a B plus on, on our efforts uh, so far. And I'd like to explain why. You know, I, I think that we all know that the demand for talent has never been more urgent. It's growing even with the pandemic and the issues around racial injustice and unemployment that have been revealed in, in the last year. I think that we know that even with those things, research shows that things that reflect quality of life, income, uh, personal well-being, civic participation, those kind of things, they're highest with people who have a post-secondary credential, a degree, a certificate, a certification, um, something that has that kind of, of value. And And as human work evolves to require broader uh, knowledge, skills, and abilities, I think the rewards for people with talent uh, who have those credentials are are only going to increase. So, you know, when we started uh, this effort at Lumina Foundation, we wanted to catalyze the country towards the 60% goal that you're talking about um, in 2008. And since 2008, we've seen an increase in the national attainment effort from 38% to more than 51%. In basic numbers, 12 million more adults have college degrees or, or other credentials than in 2008. We are clear at Lumina that we think that 60% goal is within reach because even with the headwinds associated with the pandemic, with the racial injustice, with the unemployment that I mentioned, uh, we are projecting that 56% of uh, working age adults will have a post-secondary credential by, by 2025. So that four percentage point gap is about 6.9 million more credentials that need to be generated. So it's why we are focused so heavily at Lumina Foundation on short-term credentials and associate degrees delivered through community colleges. It's why we are so focused on racial equity and justice as a part of our efforts. Uh, Lumina is holding itself publicly accountable for uh, racial equity and justice by describing ourselves as an equity-first organization. And uh, we think that's critically important to the work. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think increasing post-secondary education is more important than ever, 
and its Y Lumina Foundation continues to want to drive all the way through to the finish line of the 2025 goal. Well, bravo. Taking the numbers from 38% to 51% was a huge jump for the nation. So thank you for your leadership and definitely cheering all of us on to hitting the 60% bar. Now, you talked a little bit about headwinds. And particularly, let's talk about headwinds for adults and adults of color. I sit on the National Student Clearinghouse Board, which is the entity that collects all the higher education participation data around the country. And this pandemic is not doing us any favors in terms of moving these numbers in the right direction. I was particularly surprised by the 11% decline in community college enrollment, despite the low tuition offered by community colleges, usually in the down economy people would flood to the community colleges. What do you think is happening here? And how does that affect your community college strategy as well as uh, work that you may be doing with the Biden administration? Well, I think you and I have both uh, written a lot about these issues of what happens in these environments. And and you're absolutely right. The, the pattern is backward from what it usually has been. And I think what we misestimated, you know, even last summer, we were both probably saying we think enrollments would go up last fall, and we were wrong. And I think it's a combination of things that are unique. Uh, the pandemic, the fear of the pandemic, I think was something we didn't accurately take into account. That combined with the fact that there's been a disproportionate impact on women, and particularly women of color, that I think has created uh, more headwinds than we probably thought. And there's probably some other factors. So, you know, I think it's important to, to recognize that as we think about how we're approaching this. You know, at the end of the day, I think there's an opportunity here to bring education and workforce and economic development policies together to coordinate them better, particularly um, leading with equity as a core part of, of what we want to do. And, and this opportunity exists because of the way that the Biden administration has focused their efforts. So, you know, I think there's several ways that we can do that, um, that we can actually improve the ways in which we can go about doing that. You know, one is alignment with in-demand credentials. So things like credential-as-you-go models, so that students who are um, on the pathway to maybe an associate degree will get other credentials along the way, industry certifications, things like that. I think that's really important. Individuals need milestones. They need markers on the pathway to motivate them to keep going. And that is one way to do that, uh, particularly for these working adults. Um, another is to bundle the different uh, supports that people need. This idea of bundling and sequencing and delivering the supports that students need to persist and succeed from the time they enroll to when they complete is, is really important. You know, I People don't seem to recognize that for students at community colleges, non-tuition expenses are about 80% of the cost of attendance. And so you are dealing with things like childcare and transportation and food and housing and all of these other things that are actually significant uh, challenges to your ability to get through the, the learning uh, opportunity. So you know, we know that if you can adequately address those combination of factors, you can increase completion rates by 10% or more. And then if you add in things like advising and other forms of holistic support um, so that it's not a piecemeal approach, you can actually get um, to even higher levels of success. So, so that's um, another factor. And then the third one is doing a better job of developing 
culturally relevant implementation. This phrase that uh, people in, in our field have talked about guided pathways, I think is really important. But thinking about guided pathways to completion for Black, Latino, and Native American students, um, you have to acknowledge that there are culturally relevant factors at work here. And so, you know, we've done some work uh, with schools around the country to try to address this. And a recent example from Colorado, where three community colleges used those culturally relevant practices to try to actually reshape the curriculum and develop things uh, that are in the curriculum that are more relevant to the students' background and culture actually improve outcomes for students, particularly in in the gateway of courses. And, you know, again, if you add in other things like mentoring uh, along with the redesign of the courses, you know, you can see significant student outcome increases. The Center for Urban Education's Equity Scorecard, uh, which, you know, helps to disaggregate data about student success by race, shows that um, you can substantially increase attainment rates for Black and Latino students doing that kind of work. So I think from a policy perspective, what we have to do, uh, particularly at the federal policy level, is address some of these factors. Financing is is important. So doubling the Pell Grant is one way to go because it addresses both the tuition and the non-tuition costs. So that would be one proposal that's clearly very important. Another would be to make sure that we actually relaunch efforts like the TACT grant program, the Trade Adjustment Assistance Community College and Career Training Effort in order to bring the workforce and and higher ed efforts together that I talked about earlier. And, you know, another thing that I think might be worth thinking about is creating incentives for states to formally or informally reorganize how they uh, govern workforce and higher ed programs into some sort of coordinated or even single state agency that leads to those equitable talent outcomes that that I've been talking about. And so I mentioned this in, in my last book called America Needs Talent, this idea of a U.S. Department of Talent. And and I think states um, and the federal government could think about these coordinated efforts to bring the higher ed and the workforce strategies together. Alignment with in-demand industry credentials, bundling support, culturally relevant implementation, along with these policies idea. Excellent list, Jamie. Even on the point of student support, you know, this last year, Futura Health, we underwrote 1,600 students into um, healthcare credential pathways. And the lives that they are living, with our average age of student is 35, 85% female, 87% diverse, and 34% bilingual. The lives that they are living, they're dealing with deaths in a way that is reflective of the pandemic. And here in California, they're also dealing with fire and homelessness as a result of that. So there's just so many things that are difficult on students. When when we talk about essential workers, Vaughn, that's it, right? Those are the people (laughs) we should be be addressing their needs. Well said. So the last time we saw each other in person, you were packing up to go on your sabbatical in the UK to write your new book, which is now Human Work in the Age of Smart Machines. So before you left for London, there were discussions galore on the future of work and that was all the rage. Everyone fretted how we humans and wondered how we humans would keep up with the machine. You were always pretty calm, though, Jamie, and you were never worried about robot zombie apocalypses. <laughs> um, give us a preview of how the future will unfold for us humans. 
Well, you know, look, uh, I think you and I have known each other for a while. I've spent my life at this intersection of learning and work. You know, I've tried to make it more inclusive and more diverse and, and obviously increase attainment along the lines that we were talking about earlier. One of the reasons I wrote the book is that people keep asking us this question in education. What is education for? And as I started to explore that idea, I realized that there was this new thing that we needed to be talking about more. It's not new, but it's a new understanding of what's happening with work, which is that human work is the work that only humans can do. So, you know, we know that technology and AI is taking over more of the tasks that people used to do. But as you said, every meeting that I went to for several years was fixated on this robot zombie apocalypse. And I think that we know from history that technology both creates and destroys jobs. And we don't know what will happen this time around, but I do think we should be more interested in the work that humans can do because I think that is clearly something we can control by better preparing people for that human work. And so, you know, we we know what machines are good at. They're good at a lot of things, speed, pattern, algorithms, uh, repetition. But, uh, you know, as Ken Goldberg, who runs a robotics program at Berkeley, pointed out to me, Machines can't understand subtlety and nuance and how people react in unpredictable ways. So the more we interact the way you and I are doing now as humans, the less likely it can be done by, by machines. And so what we've got to do is nurture those foundational human capabilities to prepare people for human work and you know prepare people with the compassion, the empathy, the ethics, the collaboration, the interpersonal communication, the creativity traits and characteristics that you don't just innately possess, you also have to develop uh, over the course of your entire lifetime. And, you know, maybe we can come back to this, this issue later, but I think it's important to also understand that one of the things that really makes us different than the machines is that at the end of the day, for us as humans, work matters. <laughs> machines don't care about what they're doing, but we do because it gives us social mobility and dignity and personal satisfaction and meaning and, and all of these other things. And so I uh, profile a couple dozen people in, in the book to try to put the human face on these human uh, workers. I just think it's too important to try to make this argument abstractly. And there's some great stories. I learned so many things by talking with people uh, there's a guy who works at Cummins Engine in Indiana. They're, they have several sites named Joel Lewis. So he he had worked on the assembly line at Cummins, putting pistons into diesel engines for Dodge Ram pickup trucks for years. And over the course of several decades, he saw the assembly process continue to advance as Cummins developed more advanced power generation and, and diesel engine products. And, you know, his colleagues over time increasingly became robots collaborative robots, cobots, they call them at Cummins. What he did was uh, understand that because these smart machines, which are made possible by advances in sensor technology and AI, they're literally sharing the same space, that this is a part of the new human work experience, right? So you are working with the technology. It's not that you're doing what's left over after, after the technology does its part. You are working with it. And in fact, part of Joel's job is to actually go through several phases of training and retraining by not only doing that work himself, but training other workers and actually doing the work to quote unquote train the cobots. It's a good example of somebody who worked in a traditional manufacturing context. Technology has changed their job, but he still has that job, but it's a different job. So the tasks within his job have changed. And I think that's what's most important is developing 
opportunities for people to build those human traits and capabilities, that's the key in this new human work ecosystem. That's a great story and very helpful to enlighten us on like how to visualize the work in the future. So Jamie, you, you had talked about uh, for us humans that work matters. Tell us more about the Gallup poll results that studied what people get the most out of their work. Yes. So there's many um, years of Gallup poll research that essentially says most workers say that having both real meaning and financial stability in their work is really key to their happiness and their life satisfaction. Now, I want to be clear here. People need and want to make money. It's a very important part of who you are and what you do. But the Gallup survey says something really interesting, and it's consistent over time, which is that enjoying their day-to-day work, having stable and predictable pay, and having a sense of purpose, each rate more highly than level of pay. So that is true even among workers in the bottom 20%, the bottom quintile of incomes. I think that's really important because what it says is that serving others, having that meaning and purpose that I was talking about earlier is really important. So that's why I say work matters, not just to us as individuals, but in terms of who we impact through our work. I talk in the book about this idea that human work is this virtuous cycle. It's learning, it's earning, and it's serving. But these are not cycles that happen in discrete time periods. They're ongoing. So there's not a learning phase, an earning phase, and a serving phase. You do them all at the same time. They coexist, and they have to be part of that virtuous cycle of constant renewal and reengagement that I think is key to our efforts as human workers. So... I understand the concept of meaning and purpose and, and wanting to have that in my work. Let's talk about the other concept, though, stability. How do you find stability in a moment in time when a lot of jobs are getting gigged and fragmented? How do people who work on movies, for example, get their insurance? Uh, are we missing some social structures that can offset the rising instability of work associated with the next economy? I think we are. And and of course, you have more expertise on this than I do, Vaughn. But I I have some ideas that I think are are really important for us to sort of think about, because you're absolutely right. Um, I'm not a big fan, by the way, of the word gig worker, because I think it's it's a very narrowing uh, framing for what's happening. We've had people doing independent contracting for a long time. Technology has created new types of, quote unquote, gig work. People talk about the Uber drivers or, or what have you. Uh, But I think this issue of getting health insurance, uh, being able to contribute to retirement accounts, things like that are very important, and we traditionally have gotten them through work. Um, We need to develop new social support and new social impact tools, you know, some of which I mentioned earlier on on the education side. But things like, you know, worker co-ops, I think, are a really interesting idea that we should explore more where the workers own the business and they participate in the financial success on the base of their contributions to the to the cooperative, I think are really interesting. Being able to take your benefits from one employer to another is really important, right? We have these very limited tools, like from a retirement perspective of you've got a some sort of plan and you can take it and you have to convert it to an IRA and it's a really complicated thing. Being able to take it from one employer to another or being able to set up these portable benefit plans where you have this set up and it doesn't matter who you work for. 
you're able to get the employer to contribute or to match to it and you you make your own contributions is really important. And I'm a big fan of of different ways in which you can think about portable education benefits. So lifelong learning accounts is an idea that's been around a long time. It's essentially a three-legged stool. You've got employers, you've got employees, and you've got the government and sometimes foundations. So, you know, the employers can make a contribution to the lifelong learning account. The employee can do that. Um, The employer gets increased productivity and improved employee retention out of it. The employee gets a lot in terms of the advancement of their knowledge, skills, and abilities, their talent that I've been talking about. Government gets something out of it as well, uh, which is that government gets to use this as another tool in the social support toolbox that I think is really important in order to um, ensure that people have this lifelong opportunity to be successful in in work and in life. So so those kind of efforts that you're talking about, about being certain that we can develop new social structures and tools, I think are very important. I do see them as the next frontier of experimentation here in workforce. So let's talk about continuous learning or what you in your book refer to as lifelong or wide learning. We know the old model of getting your education up front just one time is no longer valid. Learning is like a loop. You have to come back many times to skill up and you've got to come back uh, for your booster shots. So my question to you is actually who pays? There appears to be three pocketbooks, the pocketbook of the public, the employer, and the individuals. So how do you think about these three pocketbooks when it comes to wide learning or lifelong learning? Well, I want to underscore your point about wide learning. And and I love your uh, pandemic-induced phrase, booster shot. I think that's a really valuable way to think about it because, you know, again, I'll go back to this idea of machines can learn, right? They they do this thing called deep learning where they drill down further and further into algorithms, um, into, you know, a larger and more comprehensive data sets. But as humans, we learn in a different way you know, what I call wide learning, wide in time, wide in people and wide in content. So the notion that people have to learn um, in a wide time context over the course of your entire lifetime, I think is really important. It's essential to this idea of human work and what I've been talking about in terms of that virtuous uh, cycle. Uh, It's not that you do it once early in life. You have to do it over and over and over again. It's got to be wide in people. Obviously, we have to serve a diverse population of people in terms of their race, their ethnicity, their immigration status, their gender, and a host of other factors. Human workers have to represent us, the totality of society, for all of us to share in the benefits of their human work. And obviously that uh, third dimension of wide learning is the content. So, you know, who pays for that, I think, is fundamentally important at this point in our history Because I'll go back to the top, what I said at the very beginning. If there's a rising demand for talent, we've got to figure out how to deliver it in the most efficient way at the lowest possible cost. The model that we have now does not work, right? It is too expensive, it takes too long, and it doesn't provide the kind of equity that we need in in the system. So we need an entirely new framework for thinking about the question that came up in the late 60s and early 70s who pays, who benefits, and who should pay. And here, I think we've got to recognize that there are substantial public benefits from uh, what's happening when people learn. We understand what those are. Uh, People not only earn more money, but they contribute back to society in so many ways in terms of 
of their volunteering, their civic participation, their ability to to pay taxes, all of those things. And employers and individuals also benefit. But we've, over time, shifted more and more of the responsibility to the individual when it's really shared benefits and, and shared outcomes that come from this talent development system. So I think that we need a rethink about the three-legged stool of the public and the employers and the individual. I continue to think that the American model where we require individual contribution is a good one. But the problem is we went way overboard. We asked people to pay too much. We indebted them in um, unfathomable ways. I'm not sure that it was ever the plan, but it is clearly the outcome that a substantial number of people have too much debt. It impacts their decision whether to go, where to go, and what they do after they go. And to me, that model needs to change. But this is where I think the opportunity for foundations and now new uh, opportunities because of government need to come together and be talking about these big opportunities about solving the, the who pays questions. As I said, I'm in favor of doubling the Pell Grant. I'm in favor of these, these new approaches at the federal level. But what is the state role? How does the state role change? What's the role of employers? Should employers be um, encouraged to do more or held accountable for doing more? And what do we expect individuals to pay compared to the way that we're doing it now, which is so much of it is through loans? Well, let's end with one final provocation. What does the fear of change, fear of the others, and preference for authoritarianism have to do with our level of education? Well, it's a great time to be talking about authoritarianism, I think. When I wrote the book, and there's, a, as you know, a substantial part in the book uh, about authoritarianism, um, you know, one of the reasons that um, I wrote about it is that I think that, you know, we've got these existential threats. Um, climate change is one of them. Racial injustice is clearly one. And authoritarianism is one. And if we don't address these existential threats, our ability to prosper in liberal democratic environments where diversity of expression and belief and ways of, of living that is designed to protect well, will not occur. You know, what we've seen both in the U.S. And, and around the world is a rise in authoritarianism. That's clear. Why? Well, I think it's because, you know, the authoritarians like conformity and they like to stoke fear. You know, as you said, it's fear of change or of advantage or of the other. You know, we've seen this sort of been reinforced, these information bubbles that took place with covid took place with why terrorists stormed our capital. Um, false information is a really important part of what happens to reinforce the, the tendencies of, of the authoritarians. Who does that most impact? It most impacts people with lower levels of education. That's the connection to education. So today, a third of Americans who haven't gone to college think that having a strong leader is good for the country, and about a quarter say military rule is a good way to govern the country. And the percentage of college and university grads, people who have a, some post-secondary credential who support those kind of views is a lot lower. And as I said before, they're also more likely to volunteer and vote and contribute to charities. So education helps you cultivate critical thinking and ethical decision-making and analytic reasoning and all of those other uh, democracy-enhancing traits and capabilities that I think will combat those threats to our shared desire for freedom of opportunity and expression of ideas that's critical to our democratic way of life. Labor economist uh, that you and I know, Tony Carnavali, and his colleagues at the Georgetown Center on Education and Labor have done great research on this. And they say, literally, support for authoritarianism falls 
when you increase um, education because, you know, education after high school provides that economic stability and I think stronger sense of security about the future that is critical in, in the environment we live in today. So, so that's why we need to be talking about education and how we combat authoritarianism and these other existential threats in the modern era. Thank you for explaining the connections. And thank you very much, Jamie, for being with us today and making us think broadly about the impact of education. Thank you, Vaughn. Thank you for having me and thank you for your leadership. It's very important to the future of our country. I'm Vontone Quillivan with Putura Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America. Music